Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Unbroken Arrows. I'm Greg. And I'm Catherine. And today we have Bob St. Pierre, who is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Pheasants Forever. Bob is also the host of On the Wing podcast and a co-host of Fan Outdoors on KFAN Radio. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for, for having me on. I'm, I'm flattered and looking forward to our conversation. Well, thanks, Bob, and and uh, please feel free to elaborate as you as we talk through uh, some of these things in your position as uh, with Pheasants Forever and, and Quail Forever. We're always looking to gain tips and pointers, so please, if you uh, feel the, the urge to help us out, we'll appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. I don't have any hesitation about telling stories. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so... so uh, one of the things I wanted to start off with is uh, your rooster road trip series that mm. uh, is part mm-hmm. of your uh, Pheasants Forever. And one of the things that I did note, uh, I am a native Nebraskan. And mm-hmm. in one of the, I, I don't think it was the most recent one, because I think you were in Nebraska during the most recent road trip, if that was, if that's correct. Number 14, was that the 14th? Yep, yep. Yeah, we were in Nebraska for the final couple of days this season. Yep. Correct. And But you were there before a few years back. And I can remember mm-hmm. the title of the episode that I watched, the, the YouTube video. You mentioned that Nebraska never disappoints. <laughs> yep. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Nebraska never has disappointed me. And, and that's great to hear. But wondering if there doesn't need to be a little bit of an, an asterisk by that. Just because uh, I grew up in Northeast Nebraska, and I, I grew mm-hmm. up in that late to middle '70s era, the hunting was pretty good. Maybe the heyday of mm-hmm. of uh, Northeast Nebraska hunting, anyway. And my brother and I hunted a lot, and we would get out in the morning, which is something different. I haven't done a whole lot of hunting yet in pheasant hunting in South Dakota, but they start kind of late in the day compared to what I'm used to. We like to sleep in. <laughs> sleep in. Is that what it is? <laughs> you know, I actually heard t- kind of side story, not related to what we're talking about, but someone told me that they started at 10 so that the farmers have time to finish tours and then can still go hunting. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true or like the origin of it and if they just kept it, but that's what I've always been told. Well, what I heard yeah. was that that was so the hunters could maybe stay out a little bit later at night and then get up and have breakfast. And, and that you one know, sounds like, so true Bob, too. Which one? Which one have you heard? Uh, yeah, I think there's truth in both statements. It is. It is a very interesting conversation because you think about so North Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, three states that come to mind where you can actually start pheasant hunting 30 minutes before sunrise which to me is preposterous because you can't even tell, you know, what the, um, you know, if it's a fe- uh, rooster or a hen. Um, and then you look at Iowa, you can start at 8 a.m. Minnesota, you can start at 9 a.m. South Dakota is 10 a.m. It used to be noon yeah. um, for opening week, but they yep. changed that about four years ago. Um, so I, I think there's um, elements to both, uh, what you've heard in terms of it allowed farmers to do chores in the morning. I think there's also truth in the uh, late start in allowing 
um, you know, local watering holes to <laughs> sell a little bit, uh, a, a few more mugs of suds um, in the evenings and breakfasts in the morning. So it's an economic driver. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to sort of cultural norms. Um, it, there's really, you know, not a lot of biological purpose behind the start time. I think those are more um, societal choices. And But it is, it's very interesting when you start looking at different states and what they've selected as uh, as start times. Sure. In, in back to the rooster road trip and my, my, mm. my question to you about uh, pheasant numbers, but uh, yeah. as I was saying in the 70s, 80s, uh, I felt and this, again, is my personal observation, so I'm not going to, to use historical data here, but we had good numbers of pheasants. And then in the 90s, I really noted a, a decline. And mm-hmm. then um, in between the present, I guess, and back at, in that time, I didn't hardly see any pheasants whatsoever. And quail the mm. same way when during mm-hmm. that that uh, time when I was growing up, you you ran into coveys of quail all the time. Now recently, uh, I bought a, uh, a UTV. I bought a Kawasaki mule a few years back and spent a lot of time driving the country roads in northeast Nebraska. And just my observation again, I have seen increased numbers of pheasant and quail over the last couple of years, but. What are some of the factors that that led to, I guess, in my words, such a rapid decline of numbers? Yeah, well, I don't think your observations are incorrect at all. I mean, if you if you think about land use changes over the last forty years, there's it's been dramatic all across the country. Whether we're talking about Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, um, Texas, or you know, maybe the poster child that comes to mind for me is Iowa. Iowa used to be a, a, a two million bird a year harvest, million bird year harvest for a long time. Now it's down to, you know, 200,000, 250,000 uh, pheasants, roosters um, a year in Iowa. And, it, and it, it is all about land use changes. And that's true of Nebraska as well. I think just in the period of time that I've been working at Pheasants Forever, which is 21 years, I would mark... 2006, 2007, 2008, that three-year window is the high watermark of our generation for bird numbers, and that directly correlates to the Federal Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP. Uh, CRP in, in 07 had roughly 36 million acres enrolled, and that's the crown jewel of habitat conservation programs um, particularly for the ringneck pheasant in the upper Great Plains. And, you know, and we had 36 million acres roughly in 06, 07. And that's when South Dakota set a 60 year, I guess it was a 40 year high in South Dakota. Uh, it was, it was a 40 year high in, I think in Nebraska, 60 year high in Minnesota. Um, it, since that time, CRP has tumbled. Um, we're at roughly 24 million acres in CRP right now. So you got 12 million acres of habitat difference between 2024 and 2007. And it's pretty easy to see 
the dramatic decline in acres has led to a dramatic decline in bird numbers. Um, The other thing, excuse me, think about land use changes. Nebraska is a big state, particularly east to west, um, and land use changes, uh, uh, particularly farming and ranching, has changed a lot since you were there in the 70s. Um, particularly on the eastern side of the state. Um, majority of my bird hunting in Nebraska has been focused kind of Holdridge, McLeod, that, that southwest corner on public lands through uh, what is another crown jewel of habitat conservation and access, and that's Nebraska's Open Fields and Waters Program, Correct. which is a program that pays private landowners to open up their land for public access. And it is uh, in Nebraska, it also incentivizes those landowners to create even better habitat. And when I say Nebraska never disappoints, it's, it's, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, be able to pick out some just beautifully um, manicured pieces of private land that have been opened up for public access and the habitat's been just terrific in that southwest corner of the state. And uh, um, it, as long as, you know, there's been some times where the drought in recent years has really put a stranglehold on bird numbers in Nebraska. Outside of that, it's been, boy, it's been lights out. It's been one of my favorite states to uh, to hunt. Well, my my perfect hunt occurred in southwest Nebraska. I was a middle school principal in a town called Ogallala. And mm. and just to I don't need mean to throw you under the bus here, Bob, but if we have people from Nebraska, were you were you referring to McCook, not McLeod, Nebraska? Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. Did I say McLeod? You said oh, McLeod, my, my and, and and I just I I don't want the Cornhusker fan faithful to uh, you know be sending you emails or things like that. <laughs> no, I did I did mean uh, yeah I did mean McLeod. I normally screw up McCook, the pronunciation but... <laughs> of yeah McCook. I normally screw up uh, Kearney versus Carney, Carney right? Um, but uh, yeah McCook. I I keep saying McLeod because there's west there's a county in western Minnesota McLeod and I. I must be uh, having a brain fart there, yeah. but yeah, McCook. No, no apologies necessary. But but this this hunt that I took place, uh, it would have been that two thousand seven two thousand eight time frame, and um, the middle school principal that was me, and the high school principal, and the elementary principal, and and five others went out on some of the uh, open field area. The high school principal staked it out like about three well, thirty in the morning. But uh, we made two passes in the in the field and we had our limit by like eight thirty, nine o'clock in the mm. morning, which which I had never experienced even in the heydays in northeast Nebraska. So mm. so that was a that was a great place. And yes, that's southwestern Nebraska. This was in Perkins County actually by Grant. And uh, mm. that's that's where we were at. So I can attest to yeah. that, like 2007, 2008 range. I obviously was like five or six years old, so I wasn't hunting mm-hmm. it. Um, well, I was there, but I wasn't. I don't have memories from it. But the group that I've hunted with my entire life, they have a old whiteboard in the shed 
that is kind of like the mm. home base. And from about, I want to say it was like 2003, 2004 to like maybe 2012, they kept a chart of all of the times that they hunted, how many people were there, how many birds they shot. And that like, like I said, 2007, 2008 was just lights out. They got limits pretty much every day, um, no matter how many people they had. And at the time, South Dakota had a limit of 20 people per group. But like, that's kind of a, I don't know the word, not scientific data. But, and, you know, what they say about wild birds make a bird dog, it couldn't have been a better time to have to have a young pup and uh, learning the ropes. And I remember that vividly and have tremendous memories. And, and it, it wasn't that long ago. It really it gives me hope that if we can just fix the farm bill a bit, make CRP a little bit more. Um, lucrative priority. for the private landowner and, and a priority for folks in Washington, D.C. I, I firmly believe we can get those acres back and, um, and bird numbers can rise again. I got another question about that rooster road trip. I uh, mm-hmm. noted that most of you guys were shooting over-unders. Is there a mm-hmm. reason for that or is it just a personal preference? Um, so it's a little bit of a combination of both. So Browning Shotguns is our sponsor, and they make certainly um, semi-autos, over-unders, pumps, uh, you name it. But So we get to look at their inventory and pick what, um, what appeals to us. And when you take a look at that Browning lineup of shotguns, you know, the crown jewel of Browning bird hunting guns is a Satori. It's a... It's a classic over and under, you know, you can crack it over your shoulder and, you know, tighten a dog's collar, or, you know, pet a dog on the head and uh, grab a rooster. So I have, you know, since I kind of evolved from a, a pump shotgun guy, I, I started carrying over unders and I just personally prefer them. They very little can go wrong. Like in a semi-auto action, you can deal with different things because of jam ups and bad weather. And and I just think, uh, you know, give me the crown jewel, give me a Browning Satori, and uh, I, I, apparently the rest <laughs> the rest of our crew felt similar. I will have to say that the most recent on the wing uh, podcast, you did take a little bit of a verbal abuse with, <laughs> with regard to uh being an outstater and thanking being thanked for bringing those over and unders probably what you're going to say Catherine. i give up uh three extra shots um by carrying an over under so as as na- as a native south dakotan i'm guessing Car- Catherine, you uh you carry a semi-auto i do and i've got a uh like eight shot extension on mine i think so uh, I say well, most of the you. guys in our group have some sort of extension, which is funny because once you shoot five or six times at one bird, it's like, well, I might as just unload my gun at it. So you just keep shooting. It's expensive. I'm sure your trips are less expensive than mine. I I do think there was a mentality when I was switching over to a over under. And I, I exclusively use over-under. I do own a side-by-side, but it's essentially the same thing, two shells. Mm-hmm. I do think that I concentrate with purpose on the first shot, and then I know I, if I miss that first shot, 
I've got to be dialed in on the second shot because there ain't yeah. going to be a third. <laughs> My right arm isn't strong as strong as I once was to to to, to throw a fastball. So it's uh, I got two barrels. That's awesome. Well, I started with an over under, and that was the reason. Is there like you're going to focus? You're only going to get two shots, so you better make them count. Well, I primarily yep. use a single shot, so I figured the bird has actually a better <laughs> chance of living than I do of uh, having it fall. <laughs> <laughs> so we are coming up, uh, let's see, uh, it's the 1st of March is Pheasant Fest and the Quail Classic, and that is going to be in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, our hometown right now. And so we're excited for that. And what what can a person get from attending uh, that particular uh, conference and and, you know, really from from all areas, maybe somebody that's beginning or just curious about getting involved uh, or even someone that I like me that I would say I'm a novice hunter, not not a very experienced, but you're going to have experts there, too. So mm-hmm. what what can a person look to to get from attending Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic? Yeah, thanks for providing me an opportunity to talk about um, our largest event. It's really our Super Bowl for upland habitat conservation. And, you know, I guess the very first thing that's really special and unique and for the first time ever going to happen this year in Sioux Falls is our concert for conservation, which happens on Thursday, February 29th, which is Leap Day. I have my Uh, tickets already. Outstanding. That's, That's wonderful. We we couldn't be more thrilled. Um, it's sort of a dream uh, that that we've had for a while to put together a concert leading into Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. And, um, you know, it's been pretty expensive to source bands over the years that we just haven't had the right um, opportunity until this year. And our friends at Trampled by Turtles, uh, Minnesota-based band at uh, – We've been fortunate enough to collaborate with uh, the, over the last couple of years on membership promotions and um, become really good friends with the lead singer-songwriter, Dave Simonette. And uh, they have um, joined forces with us to do a fundraising concert at the Washington Pavilion in Sioux Falls. It seats about just shy of 1,900 people. And as we record this on January 19th, we're down to about 300 tickets left. So um, in the, in the concert world, we have a low ticket alert. So if you're hearing this, don't wait very long. You can go to pheasantsforever.org slash trampled by turtles, the band's name, and it'll take you right to the ticketing page and you can take a look at what's left. But that is a, a fundraising concert for our wildlife habitat mission, which rolls right into National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, uh, which will be taking place at the Denny Sanford Premier Center, convention center connected to two different arenas um, in Sioux Falls. It's a giant, giant expo. Um, if you, you know, at, on one level, it's a sports show. On another level, it's the world's largest banquet. Um, it's the second largest uh, dog event in the country next to the Westminster Dog Show. It's a farm show with tractors and seed drills. Uh, uh, you know, you hear National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, and you probably think, well, 
Um, blaze orange shotguns and rednecks. And um, we we definitely have our share of shotguns, blaze orange, and yeah, there's a few rednecks there too. But uh, um, you know, it's wild game cooking, it's artwork, it's um, painters, wood carvers, sculptors. Uh, the whole thing kicks off with a bird dog parade at 11 o'clock on Friday, March 1st, leads right to the front gates where we do the ribbon cutting. And then for three straight days, it's the world's greatest sport show, dog show, farm show, craft show um, on the planet. And it's just a tremendous amount of energy uh, focused on uh, kind of a lifestyle that we all love. And one of the, I guess, the really, really cool thing, you know, we're a nonprofit conservation organization. Our mission is creating wildlife habitat. And so this this sports show, quote unquote sports show, three days, our biologists will meet with landowners from all over the country. If you own land in Nebraska or you own land in Washington State or Delaware, you can sit down at a computer with our biologists in the habitat help area. And we can pull a satellite image up of your property and our biologists can talk you through your property and what state or federal programs like CRP that you might qualify for and might be able to do habitat work on. And, and what's so magical about that is, you know, we're not just coming to town, you know, talking on stages, raising some money and leaving back for St. Paul, Minnesota, this three-day event is going to leave a lasting impact in the form of better wildlife habitat and public access on the landscape of South Dakota through the result of a sports show, which to me is, you know, it just tells the story of why we exist. And, you know, there's no other sports show or three-day event on the planet that can create public access and better wildlife habitat in the, you know, over the course of three days. I just think it's, it's just a magical experience. Well, we're glad that it's going to be in Sioux Falls. Yeah, we're super excited. I, well, my brother actually is the hunting manager here at Shields in Sioux Falls, and I work part-time at Shields. So we both actually got the opportunity to work the Shields booth this year. So we will get to be there and talking to people, and I've never been, so I'm super excited. <laughs> well, you're you'll be front and center because our partners at Shields, uh, they they do our store, all our merchandise is is sold through Shields, and um, they're just tremendous partners of our organization. So I'm uh, I'm excited to meet you in person at the Shields uh, booth in the show floor. That'll be very fun. Yeah, no kidding. She'll she'll have her uh, status at Shields rise when Bob St. Pierre comes and right. uh, introduces himself to, to yep. her. <laughs> oh, it'll be fun. It'll be very fun. I'm thrilled to to hear you'll be working at the event. You'll have a great time. It's it really I mean we have a youth village for kids. We have a women on the wing brunch on Sunday afternoon. Um, like I said, there's a dog parade, there's a national banquet with uh uh, Donnie Vincent as our keynote speaker on Saturday night. I mean, it's it. Hopefully, folks in Sioux Falls feel like uh, you know the Super Bowl is coming to Sioux Falls, not Las Vegas this year. I I think uh, I think so. I, I've heard a lot of talk uh, just around town about it. So, 
Now, the Trampled by Turtles concert, because uh, through your interview and your time um, that you've visited with Dave Simonette, um, and I think that led to maybe a pheasant hunt. He did I do I understand mm-hmm. the story right that he yep. he did hunt um, big game, but he'd never pheasant hunted. So, so you and Billy, I think, arranged that, and and that's kind of where that all started. From that, me learning of Trampled by Turtles that way, I I am a huge fan of of their music. So, but I've got to share a story with you with regard to K Fan when. When we were living in Ogallala, my brother Terry and his wife Rita were, they came to visit and were staying with us. And and Saturday morning at 5 a.m., because that's mountain time, mm-hmm. I, I used iHeartRadio to, to tune in to K-Fan and, and listen to Fan Outdoors. And I was listening to it in bed before I got up. And then, uh, oh, I was just actually waiting for the coffee to be brewed, you know, set the timer on the <laughs> coffee pot, you know. So my brother uh-huh. Terry's an early riser, too. So anyway, we went out and poured our coffee and went out to the deck. And and Terry says to me, he says, you know, you're Greg, you're, th- you're going to think I'm crazy. But I think I, I'm sure I heard loons this morning. <laughs> And of course, of course, those those that know the intro the to fan, the show open is exactly right, and and I had to laugh, and and that was the beginning of, of you know I I showed him I found one of the podcasts and and uh, had him listen to the intro, and then I showed him how to 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 get K Fan through iHeartRadio and and through word of mouth. The at least I've got five faithful listeners uh to my credit my my other brother pete and and then my three sons are listeners as well so oh wow how did you find an outdoors show based in minnesota when you're in nebraska well i'm a minnesota vikings fan and okay all right And Catherine's a Chicago Bears fan, so so you don't have to make fun of me for it. I already know. <laughs> but but and I'm uh, wearing my Detroit Lions hat today. Well, that's okay. I'm rooting for the Lions to get to the Super Bowl. I hope they do. Someone's got to have hope. Oh boy. But uh, yeah, that's I, I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, and I can't remember if it's it was you know advertised through that or if I was uh, could have been maybe through a tie through. Um, Cornhusker football also playing the Gophers. And mm-hmm. I, I just it, it truly by accident came across it. And um, I really enjoyed it. And and listening to you and, and Billy Hildebrand from the first time, I sense that, you know, there's a true friendship between the two of you. Mm-hmm. And my, my brother Terry often refers to, he enjoys listening to you two and your banter, kind of like listening to the guys in the coffee shop. So that's maybe one of the biggest compliments that I can give to uh, the both of you is that, you know, that's that's kind of, from my perspective, that's what it is. But does does your friendship with Billy predate K-Fan, or was that something that uh, developed it, since your time on the radio? Yes, well, it's it, very flattering to hear your story. It um, uh, means a lot, you know. So it, um, I think I've been waking up at four oh my. ten every every saturday morning for almost 13 years now that's like my um, worst nightmare <laughs> i know i, I it it uh, let me tell you it, I, it it's been uh, there's been times when i question what am i doing because i don't get paid for it um it is purely 
it's something I enjoy. And you're right about um, the friendship I have with, with Billy. Um, we're, you know, we're kind of like brothers. Um, you know, there's a little age difference there, but uh, feels like my older brother. And um, uh, it, it, it tr- it's just a tremendous friendship and a re- relationship that I cherish. Um, we we became friends a couple of years before KFAN. Um, I was I worked in minor league baseball before I started working at um, Pheasants Forever, and it, it led me to. So I did a lot of radio interviews on KFAN. So the program director knew me. Billy was the host of the Thursday night show and the Saturday morning show with somebody else. And Billy and I became friends. And we were doing a little bit of bird hunting just as, as I got going at Pheasants Forever. And then the Saturday show opened up when an, another guy departed as the host and Billy was tapped to host it, but he said, I want to bring in an, a different co-host and that's where my name came up as um, a co-host. So uh, we were friends a little bit before that, but then obviously the relationship, um, the friendship galvanized when we spent every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. together on the air. So it's really flattering to hear stories, uh, you know, you're listening in Nebraska. There's a the upland quail biologist, the upland bird biologist in the state of South Carolina listens every Saturday morning, particularly in the winter, because he just likes listening to ice fishing talk and us talking about cross-country sea. I'm like, you live in South Carolina. You're never going to be able to ice fish. And he said, that. well, that's why I like to listen. I I like hearing about ice fishing. So it's real flattering to hear stories like yours. Sure. Well, I've learned a lot from Fan Outdoors. Uh, Tommy George, I, I think, is, mm. is when his talks about lures, lures and presentation and and as a former biology teacher, Stan Tequila's insights are always interesting too. And I could go on with other <laughs> other guests that you have. But Bob, I can't transition away from talking about fan outdoors without asking Bob St. Pierre how his go-to mm. fishing combination of a pink jig head and a white twister tail <laughs> came to be. Oh yeah, you know. So, and that's a K-Fan thing that I talk about pretty much every week. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't a lure that I grew up with, but it is a lure that um, I don't know. Probably the last twenty years, you know, when I really um, got probably when I got my first boat as an adult and started fishing, you know, right as soon as the ice went out, I'd start with that pink jig and white twister tail on crappies just it's it's probably best among anything on crappies and then it just it, as the seasons progressed i i would catch everything on it one year we went up uh we did a show in ely minnesota which is right on the edge of the boundary waters canoe area wilderness and it was it was the fishing opener show but billy had to get back to his cabin in Sock Center. So we got done with the show and I left that um, that show in Ely and started going from lake to lake just driving because I didn't have a watercraft. Billy, Billy had everything. So I fished from shore with that pink jig and white twister tail on my way home and I caught 
um, a smallmouth bass, a largemouth bass, a northern pike. I caught, swear to God, a 50-inch muskie from shore. I caught a rainbow trout. I mean, it was just, is like, unbelievable. I drove, like, 150 miles, and I caught darn near every species um, driving home at different boat launches. So it just was... And it's it's just one of those lures that almost never fails me. So, so if you haven't tried a white twister tail and a pink jig, go to uh, go go buy one for your tackle box. Well, I have, and we have a family cabin that's been in in my uh, mom's side of the family for ninety years up in it's north of Park Rapids, and mm. and I did use the pink jig head and a twister tail, and and on the first cast I caught a northern. Since mm. then, Bob, nil. <laughs> so you're saying I'm a better bird hunter than I am a fisherman. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying that you're confident in it, and I, I, I think my confidence lacks. So, no, that's I, I, I think that's some of the, like I said, some of the banter between you and Billy are fun. It's fun to listen to, and, and that pink jig well, head and, and, and white twister tail always comes up, so. Yeah, it does. (laughs) So one of our goals with our Unbroken Arrows podcast is to try to encourage those really of any age that have an interest to become more active in the outdoors, to explore the variety of options available uh, to them to do so from bird watching to, to hunting and everything in between. But we also have talked about limiting factors, and by no means are we suggesting that somebody goes from the couch to hunting prairie chickens, as that's a pretty rigorous hunt. Or even mm-hmm. purchasing our pickleball racket and starting up, you know, to play pickleball can be, that can be awful rigorous too. So you have to take into consideration what is best based upon your health, and sometimes uh, that would include talking to a healthcare professional for advice about whether or not an activity is well suited for you. But um, with that being said, you've shared with your listeners that you do have diabetes. And, Mm -hmm. and how do you manage that and, and still do the things you do? Because it's just not upland bird hunting, you cross country ski and canoe and hike and, and all those things. So, yeah. So, um, I, at 26 years old was diagnosed with adult onset of juvenile diabetes. So diabetes has type one and type two. Type 2 is generally controlled with diet and exercise. Type 1, which I have, is insulin dependent. My pancreas just simply doesn't create insulin anymore. So I have an insulin pump um, on my belt and a little tubing that uh, has insulin in a vial, and it's constantly dripping insulin um, through a subcutaneous um, plastic needle that I change out every three days. Okay. Uh, it's, con- it's, it's mimicking my pancreas and it's dripping insulin in. And if I need more, I dial it up. And if I need less, I turn it off. Um, but it's, it's basically like, I don't know. I kind of think of myself as RoboCop. I've, I've got to, uh, a little, uh, a little something keeping me alive. And it's always, you know, every morning I roll over on it and, take it off when I get in the shower and it's a reminder that, um, life is short and nothing is guaranteed. And, um, and it, and that to me reinforces every single day why I come to work at pheasants forever, because I'm, you know, able to make a difference, um, through habitat conservation, something that, 
um, is incredibly meaningful to me on a very personal level. Um, I get to do something that uh, it fits what I care about and, and I can have a lasting impact. And, and um, you know, it's, it's not all, you know, candy canes and roses. You know, it, I've, I've got a real serious health condition that I've got to monitor every minute of every day. And bird hunting um, and cross-country skiing and hiking and, and all of that challenges it. It's very good to be ex- um, do as much exercise as I do and um, be physically fit and stay active because, you know, what diabetes does is it puts stress on your organs and on your heart and leads to heart disease and stroke. And, you know, if, if I were obese or uh, lethargic, it would cause additional problems um, having diabetes. So being able to be active helps reduce some of the risks, but because I'm insulin dependent, you know, it, it, in hunting is so rigorous. I have to be very mindful about, um, you know, I I just can't leave the truck with a shotgun and a dog and be out for four hours. I, I have to have sugar with me. I have to know where my blood sugar is at. Um, you know, one of the scariest things that ever happened to me related to my diabetes and hunting is, you know, I, I press it pretty hard. And w- one winter, a few years ago, it was, it was, I don't know, 10, 12 below out. And I normally carry Gatorade as my sugar, um, while I'm hunting, if I'm drinking Gatorade throughout the day, I can keep my blood sugar up and not have any issues. Cause the fear is going basically below 80. That's kind of the magic number that like you, if you're non-diabetic, you're probably, your blood sugar is at 80, 84. Uh, mine rides a little bit higher cause I can't keep it just perfectly level, but the danger is your number going below that 80 because you can slip into a coma and die and exercise drives that number down well when you're hunting you're just driving that number down 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 so i normally drink gatorade or grape juice or eat fruit snacks just trying to keep it up for the amount of carbs that i'm burning and driving my blood sugar down well i was out for a hunt in super cold weather which I was, I was fine. I mean, I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I can handle the cold. I wear the right wool layers and get moving and temperatures are not that big a deal. But, you know, I got like three miles away from the truck and I went to drink my Gatorade and it was frozen solid. And that was my sugar source. And, you know, that was probably the most nervous I've ever been in with the diabetes where I had to just hustle back to the truck and get, um, other sugar source that wasn't frozen. Um, but it is one of those things where, you know, you just constantly have to monitor whether I'm skiing, hiking, hunting, going in to do radio. You know, I don't want to bottom out blood sugar wise when I'm talking on the air and <laughs> you could sound like an idiot real quickly when, when your blood sugar isn't in the right place. So, or doing a podcast or going into a meeting or public speaking. So it's, it's something that hasn't stopped me. It's sort of fueled me to achieve it. It's achieved success in spite of it, but I have to, I can't put it away. I, it's, it's constantly top of mind. And then do you like those that you hunt with, do you educate those that you're with 
mm. and say to them, you know, okay, if this starts to happen or if I, this is how you can help me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. Like I think about rooster road trip. Um, everybody that's in that trip with me definitely knows all my friends know, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in a scenario with complete strangers, I will definitely tell them, you know, what's going on. I'm, I'm very, very aggressive. If I'm not feeling good, I break open the shotgun and I never put myself into a situation where, my blood sugar is low and I've got a firearm in my hand. I mean, it's just, that's a recipe for bad situations. So uh, I am very diligent about monitoring it. You know, one of the, my great joys in life is um, hunting alone, uh, just me and the dogs. And it doesn't make my wife, Meredith, particularly happy all the time that I will hunt alone. I, I mean, I'll go into the boundary waters without cell coverage Um or, or any sort of way of asking for help. But the reality is if I need help in blood sugar, there's nobody that's going to be able to help me. I got to take care of myself. And that means having the forethought to um, be prepared. So long-winded answer to your question. I, I let people know, but ultimately it's personal accountability. And uh, I, I try to be very diligent about making sure I, I'm not in a situation where um, you know, I've, I've forgotten to do something that's going to put me at risk. You mentioned diet is also something that, um, is part of that. And, you know, some people that hunt and fish take what I, what I call, I guess, is a public relations approach, meaning they offer up their harvest or catch to others to enjoy on their table. But numerous times I've heard you mentioned, uh, and I've actually heard you take some verbal joust for it too, because you're making plans <laughs> as to how you're going to prepare yeah. your intended target, maybe before it's hitting the ground. So, uh, is it yeah. fair to say that one of the reasons you hunt and fish is that you enjoy um, how how to prepare uh, your your targets? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I that the completion of the hunt with a meal on the plate is as important as the dog training and the practice, the clay rounds of clay practicing, um, that meal is incredibly important to me. And, you know, one of my pet peeves is uh, people that refer to hunting as a sport, you know, I, I mean, it's, there's nobody keeping score winning and losing. I mean, to me, hunting is part of my lifestyle. It's, it's part of my identity. And, you know, that, that includes the food. Um, so yeah, when I, um, and, and I put a little bit of label, a little more than just, you know, pheasant breast, when I put a bird in a, in a, um, you know, freezer bag into the freezer, I, you know, um, you know, pheasant point, uh, Padua, um, you know, November snowstorm, you know, I'll put location. So, so when I pull that particular piece of meat out of the freezer, it's it's not just a meal, it's a memory. You know, I can remember exactly the sequence, what the dog was doing, what it what the sun was like or the the sky was like on that day. Um and I can relive it through, you know, the final completion of a meal. And you know, it just it, 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 I just don't understand people that 
will breast out a pheasant and not eat the legs or, you know, kind of turn their nose up at a sharp tail. It's like, if you don't love it, why are you doing it? I mean, this is such an important component of it. And I, I do absolutely love wild game. It's healthy, it's tasty, and uh, it's all part of the mix. I'm really glad you shared that because that that is something, again, our podcast, Healing Through the Hunt, and one of the things that we are doing, we're creating memories. We're creating more memories to, to go with the memories that we have. And that is an excellent way of, of reliving that and even the conversation mm. during the preparation phase of things. So, well. I'm really lucky because I despise cooking. Um, but I love wild game, but Greg is a phenomenal cook. And then my boyfriend, Nate is a phenomenal cook as well, especially when it comes to wild game. So I don't ever have to worry about that, but I wish as one of those things, like as a hunter, I wish I was better at it. It's not even just that I don't like to cook. I am just so bad at cooking. (laughs) Well, I, I would wager you'll get better over time. Well, she's pretty good at making pizza rolls at this point. (laughs) You can give me more credit than that. I make tacos and Mm. I make spaghetti, and that's about as far as my cooking knowledge goes. She does a great job making um, goose jerky, though. Oh, I do do goose jerky. You know, but but take tacos, take spaghetti, um, take pizza, and substitute wild game for the ingredients you're used to and i mean you can make some absolutely spectacular pizza you like i what i've done is um you pre-cook the pheasant and you use pheasant and like uh, take um, the pits out of cherries and use cherries instead of fresh tomatoes so a pheasant cherries and like pesto and some mozzarella cheese and you make a pizza out of it and i i do the same like blueberries and rough grouse and you're i'm sure listeners like scratching their head like "Mm, this guy (laughs) sounds a little bit of a wacko i swear it's it's terrific or even simplify like you know get a pack of taco seasoning and cube up your pheasant and just replace what you would normally use chicken or ground beef and use pheasant. And you'll be surprised that, and, and that'll ease your way into testing different things. But, um, wild game cooking isn't as intimidating as maybe it appears to be. It really isn't. No, you just, you just have to try and, and you can do a lot of reading and there's a lot of helpful hints, whether it's YouTube or, or cookbooks or, you know, listening to other podcasts as well. But, but uh, yes, it's it's not as intimidating. You were talking about using the pheasant as a substitute for the meat to tacos. We've we've done that uh, with uh, turkey legs, and mm-hmm. I found a way to use the uh, the pressure cooker, the instant pot, to to uh, prepare the the turkey legs that way. And that's something sometimes people don't even keep those. You know, and there's a yeah. lot of good yep, meat there. Right so so <clears throat> yep. Crock-Pot can be your wild game cook's best friend. Absolutely. Um, One of our points of emphasis with our podcast is uh, also, you just mentioned uh, the mental health aspect of things. And and again, I want to remind anybody that's listening, this this time of year is tough sometimes. It's the winter doldrums. So if you uh, are in crisis or thinking of suicide, 
please dial 988, and those are there are resources there available for you. And um, we we ask that that you take the time to to try to get help because the world is a better place with you in it. Yeah, absolutely. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to to join both of you, um, hear your story, uh, allow me to share share mine. I love what you're doing. I think um, you know healing through the outdoors is very natural. Um, it, it, it's an organic way, whether it's diabetes, um, just finding help in a challenging world mentally. Um, there's a lot of a lot of wonderful things that can happen when you follow a dog into a field. And um, it's the place that I feel most at home. So I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. And I'm absolutely flattered to hear um, people in Nebraska and South Dakota listening to KFAN because they enjoy uh, um, me and Billy give each other a little bit of grief in the name of friendship. That's very flattering. And, and we learn some things along the way as well. So to all our listeners, please take some time to get outside, get outdoors, and experience its healing powers. With that, until next time. Greg's trying to figure out which button he has to push to stop recording. It's not that one. This this it's, might be no. this might be edited out. It's the stop one.